At the end of 2023, Formula One is saying goodbye to one of its longest-serving team principals. It was my dream to lead a Formula One team. I was not frightened to go there and I was looking forward, I was optimistic and uh, it was a hell of a fun to do this. I met so many people, some of them will think, fortunately this idiot is away, maybe some of them will think he was good, I don't know and to be honest I even don't care. Franz Tost has been in charge of AlphaTauri since the beginning when the team was known as Toro Rosso. With the remit of readying drivers to win for Red Bull Racing, Franz helped launch the F1 careers of world champions Sebastian Vettel and the man who's currently tearing up the history books, Max Verstappen. When we brought into Formula One, I remember back some of your colleagues came to me and said, you are totally crazy. How can you take someone who even doesn't have a driver license? Yeah? Then I said, sorry, I don't want to discuss this with you now. Come in five years, then we can discuss it. Yeah? Because I got tired to defend our decision. Hello and welcome to F1 Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. The chequered flag is waving on Franz Tost's remarkable career in Formula One, 23 years after he started as track operations manager for BMW's F1 programme with Williams. Tost's contribution to BM's 10 Grand Prix wins and many podiums didn't go unnoticed. For 2006, he was appointed team principal of Red Bull Racing's new sister team, Toro Rosso. His mission was simple, to transform young talent from Red Bull's junior program into serious competitors capable of stepping up to the senior team and winning. Franz certainly proved pivotal in the careers of Sebastian Vettel, Max Verstappen, Carlos Sainz, Daniel Ricciardo, Pierre Gasly and others. But he wasn't afraid of chasing success for his own team. From Vettel's historic maiden victory in their home race at Monza in 2008, to Gasly's sensational first win at the same track in 2020, the Austrians' underdogs have defied expectations on many occasions. Now, after 18 years in the hot seat, making him the second longest serving team principal on the current grid, he's decided to box and to opt for a new strategy away from Formula One. Franz very openly reflects on what it's been like to lead AlphaTauri, including the challenges of his relationship with Red Bull, the team's recruitment approach, how he's helped develop rookie drivers and his memories of those magical Monza successes. He also tells me which drivers have impressed him the most and why others didn't succeed, what he'll miss about Formula One and much, much more. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Franz, you're stepping down after 18 years as a team principal in Formula One. How are you approaching what is the end of an era? These 18 years were quite interesting. I think it was uh, one of the most important and interesting time in my life. Two years ago, I said to Dietrich Mateschitz and also to Dr. Marco that uh, I will not be anymore at the pit wall with 70. And they said to me, ah, you have to continue a couple of years. I said, no, no, we will find something and we will find some person who will take over because um, once you have to say to yourself, time is over. And when I was younger, I always said to myself, if 
I should be in a responsible position, I will not glue on the seat. And now I am in the responsible position, and now I do not want to glue on the seat. And therefore, I said to myself uh, a couple of years ago, two or three years I want to stop. And um, next year in January, I'm 68 years old, and I think this is the correct time to hand over the team to younger people, to very well experienced people. They will bring the team to another level because uh, Peter as well as Laurent are very well experienced. They know Formula One from all the different aspects. And this is exactly what I wanted because I want that the team comes forward. And that's important to bring in this change. And therefore, I am really positive about this. But Franz, even if it's been a couple of years in the making this decision, it must be an emotional moment for you. Not at the moment so far, because I'm prepared to this. I don't know how it is then uh, in Abu Dhabi or how it will be uh, when the season is then complete over at the end of the year. Uh, but of course, I've been now 18 years in Faenza. It's a fantastic uh, city. I like Italy. And, uh, but what is more important, uh, the people over there. They are very clever. They are very motivated. They have a motorsport passion. And this is something which I like very much. The Italian people like especially Formula One, also MotoGP and other categories of motorsport. And uh, they have put in a lot of effort in the last years to build up the team. And uh, I will miss these people yeah, because we have worked so long together. We have also worked successful together. We had ups and downs, as it's usually in business. This, of course will then be emotional uh, not to work anymore together with this uh, really group of people. You talk about the ups and the downs. What kind of a boss have you been to the people in Faenza? Are you a hard taskmaster? My leading style is totally easy. I sit together with the people, we discuss a topic, we make a decision, but then we must go through this. Yeah? Also, what I do not like is to decide something and then uh, afterwards to change it, to go another direction, uh, you must do it. And um, I must say that at the beginning, we had sometimes some small discussions and troubles, but uh, people then got used to me and uh, we then had a fantastic cooperation. People got used to you. So when, like in Saudi Arabia, early in 2023, you said things like, I no longer trust my engineers. What sort of reaction did that instill in the people back home? The engineers whom I meant, they understood it. I must tell you the background story. Our car last year was not competitive. And then I said to them, Chance, we have to do something because I cannot accept that we are rolling around in the back of the field. I want to be at least in the front part of the midfield. Yeah, yeah, we are working very hard and we have solutions. We know exactly what we have to do. I visited them in the aero department in Pista and they told me figures and they said the car will be fantastic. Real good performance, very good figures in CFT as well as in the wind tunnel and blah, blah, blah. And then we came to Bahrain and uh, I didn't uh, need to wait for the race. I knew already after the test that we are nowhere. And then I got upset and I said to them, hey, Chance, this has nothing to do with a racing car. What's, what's going on? 
yeah, you know, uh, there's coming an upgrade. And I said, I don't care about an upgrade. Now this car must perform well, yeah? And then in your press conference, yeah, I was asked about this, and I said, I don't trust them anymore. If I don't trust anymore, the people, then they are out. And this was uh, the case. We changed them and brought in some new people. Fortunately, we started this process already last year because, as you know, senior uh, engineers and aerodynamicists, yeah, they have a garden holiday time or however you call it, yeah, uh, for a year. And uh, we started already last year in March, April, because I was not so sure whether it worked, fortunately. And then we got these new people in April, May, July. Also, uh, we have now a good, hopefully a good team in the aero department. And I must say all the upgrades they brought this year so far worked acceptable. And uh, the rest then we will see. Let's wind the clock back to the beginning now, to when you got the call to run Toro Rosso from Dietrich Mateschitz. How much of a surprise was it to get that telephone call? It was not so much a surprise for me because Dietrich wanted me uh, one year earlier to go to England. Uh, but I had a contract with BMW. And I said to him, look, Dietrich, uh, I go to uh, Milton Keynes because this was when he bought uh, the Jaguar team. Yeah? No problem, but I will not break a contract. If Tyson lets me go, no problem. Then he called Tyson and Tyson said, no way, Francis, you stay with us. And then I said to Dietrich, sorry, Dietrich, I can't go there uh, because uh, I don't break a contract. This is one of my life philosophies. And I stay with BMW. And my contract in those days said that um, I can leave the team if I say it until the end of October. This was the option from BMW. And then he called me the year after and said, so, uh, you go now to Italy. And I said, of course, no problem. Then I go to Italy. Yeah? And this was then the case. I was really looking forward to become the team principal of uh, uh, Scuderia Toro Rosso. And uh, went there, uh, I think it was at 8th of November, 2005. And uh, I remember back in BMW, the engineers, they couldn't understand that I go to the Minardi team. Yeah? And I think it was in Suzuka, there was a race, there was a pit stop, and uh, the Minardi um, car caught fire. And they just turned around to me and said, uh, good luck over there, yeah? And uh, I was just smiling by myself, but <laughs> yeah, I was looking forward to go there and it started everything in a normal way. Yeah? You know, at the beginning I was a little bit shocked because I expected more. There were just two older buildings and that was it. And there was hardly a machine shop or anything what you need to do a successful Formula One. But Mateschitz said quite clear to me the philosophy of the team is, first of all, to use the synergies with Red Bull technology and then to educate young drivers from the Red Bull driver pool. The reason why Mateschitz bought this team was coming from Bernie and from Max Mosley because they said, Dietrich, please buy the team because we need some cars at the starting grid. This was the reason. And then Mateschitz said, of course, I buy the team, but... I don't want to build up the infrastructure in Milton Keynes and in Faenza uh, that they compete against each other. They must use uh, the cars from Red Bull 
racing, and this is how we started. In 2006, we used the cars which Red Bull Racing was running in 2005. And I remember back, uh, this was not so easy at the beginning because it was the 10 cylinder, and the other teams all had the V8. Then we had to put in their air restrictor, and uh, comments from all the others said, ah, oh, they will win races because with the V10 is much easier, they have a much better torque, and so the big blah, blah, blah is and politics, as usual in Formula One. But at the end, it worked quite well because the air restrictor was, um, was quite tough. And uh, yeah, we competed on, on the level where we were expected to be. How daunting was it for you to become a team principal? No, it was fantastic. It was, uh, let me say, my dream to lead a Formula One team. Yeah, but how much of a step up was it from what you'd done before? No, it was a big step up. You know, when I was uh, at BMW, I was responsible for the complete operational side between BMW and Williams in those days. But uh, uh, to take over a team, to become team principal, is, of course, a big to-do list which you have uh, to um, accept. And um, I like working, and from this point of view, I was not shocked or I was not uh, frightened to go there and to do this. Uh, I was looking forward, I was optimistic, and uh, it was a hell of a fun to do this. Tell us a little bit more about Dietrich Mateschitz. It's just been the anniversary of his passing. What sort of a man was he? What sort of an inspiration was he for you? He was one of the most exciting uh, people I've ever met. Because if you talk to him, uh, he was levels ahead of uh, the way of thinking and his visions and uh, how he explained everything so logical. Uh, you know, but there are many people out there who have visions, but he realized them and he realized them with a success. And he said to me, uh, Franz, you go now to Faenza, you build up the team and then you have to educate the drivers and then they come to Red Bull Racing, they will win races and championships. I was sitting there thinking by myself, yeah, okay, good, uh, I know what I have to do, yeah. But at the end it worked. He was so far ahead in his way of thinking that uh, at the end everything worked how he thought it will be. And um, I never had a meeting with Mateschitz where I left the room without exactly knowing what to do. There was no discussion, nothing. This has to be done and basta. And that's it. No, this was uh, a fantastic person. Uh, you will never meet anymore uh, in the world. Dietrich was a unique person. How we met each other, yeah, it, 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 was, it was not planned. Yeah. It was uh, 1993, I was introduced to him at the Nürburgring because I wanted to work in Formula One at Sauber and he was a sponsor at Sauber. And um, there I met him the first time and then we always had some contact. Uh, I was in Hinville, we had an interview and so, yeah, but I didn't come together. Therefore, I stayed in those days then uh, with Willy Weber, yeah, and not in Formula One. But with Mateschitz, we met us nearly every year when he came to a Grand Prix, or he, or he called me, wanted to know what's going on, and so, yeah. And um, we had always contact. Now, how ambitious were you for the team? Were you happy 
to play second fiddle to Red Bull Racing or were you always a little bit more ambitious than that? No, my first primary motivation was to build up the team and uh, it was never uh, the ambitious uh, to beat Red Bull Racing or to be on the, on the same level because Mateschitz made this clear. There's Red Bull Racing, they have to win races, they have to win championships and uh, we are a so-called second team use synergies from uh, Red Bull Racing, educate young drivers, and that's it. And um, also, when we wanted to do something in the infrastructure, he always asked, does this make sense? Can't you use this with, uh, or share this with Red Bull Racing or Red Bull Technology? Uh, it was always clear that Red Bull Racing is on another level than us. You didn't read the script, did you? Because in 2008, you beat Red Bull Racing in the Constructors' Championship by 10 points. How did that go down? <sighs> yeah. <laughs> it was an Adrian Newey car. And as you know, we always had another engine than uh, Red Bull Racing because when Newey came to the team, he didn't want to have a Ferrari engine. And therefore, Dietrich called me and said, you get now the Ferrari engine. This is okay for you. It's fantastic. This is very good. Yeah, Very good news because Red Bull decided to go with the Renault engine. In uh, Monza, we had a fantastic package together. Uh, first of all, the Ferrari engine in those days was for sure a little bit better than the Renault engine. For a second, Adrian's car was working as always, fantastic. And uh, Sebastian Vettel did a real good job in combination also with the team and with the setup. Italy's other team, the little one, Toro Rosso, gets its moment in the sun. Sebastian Vettel is a Grand Prix winner for the first time. He's the youngest ever, and that's one of the greatest things I've ever seen in Grand Prix racing. You have won the Italian Grand Prix. I'm proud of you. Bravissimo. Bravissimo. I don't know what to say. I miss the word. Grazie mille. Grazie mille. Yes! This victory... I would say started already on uh, Friday because it was wet on Friday and many other teams didn't go out. Yeah? And I remember Gerhard was sitting on the side of me in a bit where I said, hey, why they don't go out? Because uh, we knew it could rain on Sunday and it could rain on Saturday in the qualifying as well. Yeah? And he said to me, I don't understand. Maybe they want to save tires or whatever. Because Monza is a very special track. If it's wet... You know, we have, it's a very uh, low downforce. You have to go out, you have to find out where is the water standing. Yeah? And in the wood uh, or in the forest uh, behind, the water does not go away so fast. Yeah? That means it comes always back. Therefore, it was important. And I said, no, our drivers should go out. They should do as many laps as possible just to get used to this. And also thinking that uh, Sebastian was new, you know, he was not so experienced like other drivers in those days. And um, I think this was the um, basis for the pole position on Saturday, because on Saturday during the qualifying, I remember, I saw other cars going out and with the intermediates, I just said to Gerhard, well, what do they do one with the intermediates? They have no chance because there was too much water out there. Yeah? And um, therefore, we got the ball position and uh, the race, everything went well. The team did a fantastic job also with the pit stops. And Sebastian drove a race without any mistakes. Yeah? Therefore, we won. But as you know, every medal has two sides. The one side was, we won this race. The other side was, 
that, as you know, in Formula One, as it's usual, all the teams said, this is not the way Formula One can go in future. They have to do this job in future by themselves, no synergies anymore. And then FIA changed the regulation and came up with the listed parts, as you remember, yeah, which meant uh, we had to design the monocoque by ourselves, the nose, the front wing, the diffuser, the floor, the side pods, the engine cover, the rear wing, as the complete aerodynamic. And we were there with two old buildings. Uh, and this was a tough time, then from 2009, then onwards, to build up the infrastructure. We had to build up an aero department, a design department, a purchasing department, a production department, uh, quality control, assembling, the race team we had already. Yeah? But this was a huge, huge challenge. The job had suddenly got a lot harder, hadn't it? So that victory at Monza in 2008 was a double-edged sword. You had the euphoria of the moment, but that was the catalyst for the change in the regulations. Exactly. And we couldn't, we couldn't use any more the synergies as before. Did Dietrich think about axing the team? Because that was not his plan when he bought Minardi. Uh, not at this moment. Uh, sometimes later, especially uh, when uh, we were struggling with the engines, with the new power units, for example, he was sometimes very frustrated and uh, was not anymore coming to Formula One races. Uh, and this was a, a tough period. But at the end, um, he uh, was such a Formula One enthusiast and fan and he also saw that the, the business grew up. Uh, more and more cans were sold every year. They sold 20% more than the year before, 25%. Yeah. This was also because uh, of Formula One, of, of, uh, for sure. Yeah. And then, fortunately, uh, Red Bull Racing came back to the uh, victory street. Incredible seeds for Alpha Tauri and Pierre Gasly, who can come out of the final corner. And Pierre Gasly, for the first time in Formula One, wins. He's victorious at Monza. Oh my God, guys, we did it again. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> so you win at Monza in 2008. Your second victory comes again at Monza, but this time in 2020. How did the emotions compare between those two wins? Both events were very emotional, yeah, because first of all, we are an Italian team and we won in Monza. This is something special for the Italian uh, employees. The first victory with uh, Sebastian yeah, was a completely surprise yeah, that we could do this. The second victory with uh, Pierre Gasly was in 2020, you know, we came up with uh, the new team name with Scuderia Alfa Tauri. We were the ambassador of uh, Alfa Tauri, of the fashion brand of Red Bull. And this brought us also a little bit on another level. We had a good car in this year. We, we knew it. There were special circumstances with the red flag, uh, or with uh, when uh, Pierre could uh, take over the lead. Uh, I think it was against Stroll to the first chicane. Uh, then, uh, yeah, he drove a real good race. We had, if I remember right, uh, a little bit more wing than um, Carlos Sainz, who was in those days in the McLaren. He caught up, but 
between Lesmo 1, Lesmo 2, and uh, also in the Ascarische Ken, Pierre could always go a little bit away from uh, Carlos, and therefore Carlos couldn't catch up in this way. We also were lucky that Carlos at the beginning, the first four, five, six laps, was a little bit uh, more behind. He had to overtake some cars, otherwise it would have become real tough. But it was a very emotional moment. The team celebrated it, of course. Yeah, It was uh, a big success for the complete operation. Now, if they're the two biggest highlights of your Formula One career as a team principal, what other highlights are there that we can talk about now? I mean, what about the first points back at Indianapolis 2006 with, with Vitt Antonio Liuzzi? With, with Liuzzi, yeah. This was also quite important, yeah, because in those days uh, you got only points until the eighth position, yeah. And uh was also quite emotional. But how important was that result just for the securing the future of the team? You know, every every success is important for the team. And uh, uh, especially, you know, if you score the first points with a new team, it's important for the morale, for the motivation of the complete uh, team, for the employees that they see it's going forward. And then we had to build up the new infrastructure from 2010 uh, to 2016-17 with court points, yeah, but uh, we were not in the position uh, to be real successful. 2018 was then a very important year for us because uh, we signed uh, the works contract with Honda. And this was also a big step yeah, because I remember back uh, there was a showrun at the Trafalgar Square in, in, in London. And there were some McLaren people there, and they said, Franz, you are totally crazy. You, you work together with Honda next year? And I said, Jens, let's talk about this in five years. Yeah. But it was not possible anymore to talk with them in five years because they were not there anymore at McLaren. Yeah. For me, it was clear that uh, Honda will come back. And uh, for me, uh, or for the team, it was a, a big uh, step forward. And... Uh, we had a very, very good and close relationship, fantastic cooperation with Honda. And uh, then 2019, uh, Red Bull was also out with the Honda engine. And then the, the rest of the story we know. Yeah. Why were you so convinced that Honda would come good when you signed with them in 2018? I lived one year in Japan and uh, I knew Sakura. I was there 2014. And uh, they showed me, uh, because they were working on the new engine, Raisan was in those days um, the motorsport boss over there. And I asked him how many test miles they did with uh, McLaren. And he looked to me and said, nothing. I said, hey, in, in, in half a year the season starts. Yeah, no, no, next week they start with the dyno. And then I said, this is a joke, huh? Because I couldn't see anywhere uh, an engine on the line. I yeah? said, no, 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 that's okay. I said, Arisen, postpone it by one year. You have no chance. Then he was a little bit upset with me. Yeah? I knew some people from over there. I was convinced that they get it together. What they just misses the time. They underestimated this project, as others here in Europe as well, other manufacturers. What happened with uh, McLaren was clear for me. It will not work. There's no way. And then uh, we, we talked every year. And I just said to myself, no, no, we wait another year yeah, because they will learn something. And once we think that uh, they are on a certain level, 
then uh, we will work together with them. And this was done in uh, 2018. How does Honda's commitment to Formula One compare to BMW's? Because you've got experience of both. The commitment from both companies was the same. I must say also at BMW, and it's a shame that they stopped Formula One there yeah, because there was also a real strong group of engineers. And in those days, the BMW engine was by far the best one. And at Honda, there is a, a similar approach. And uh, people are very motivated. People are Formula One enthusiasts. And you can see this. And you can feel this when you are there. That's the reason why at the end uh, they are so successful. Once you'd built up the team to the level you wanted, I think it was 80 people when it was Minardi, when you took over. And then what are we now, 500 people? Yeah, we were 85 people when we started. And now it depends. Uh, normally we have around 520 people. During the peak time, we have uh, additional contractors where we come up to 580 to 600 people. So this is uh, January, February, March. But nevertheless, we are still a smaller team because uh, uh, the top teams have nearly 1,000 people. Yeah. What is your natural position, do you feel, in Formula One? You've always asked for the team to finish fifth in the Constructors' Championship, yet I think it was in the sort of mid, was it 2014 to 2017, you, you were consistently at the P7 mark. Do you think actually that's the level of the team as it is now? It depends on the other teams, on the level of performance from the other teams. In those days, I must say, a fifth, sixth position should have been possible. But um, we couldn't achieve it because of various reasons. Nowadays, the teams are much closer together. The level of performance has reached a real very high level. Look to the qualifying results. The difference between cars could be two, three hundredths of a second. The midfield, I've never seen a field so close together, as it's currently the case. It's good. This is the first result from the cost cap. And uh, just hope then in a few uh, years that uh, also the top teams lose a little bit of their advantage and that the complete field will come closer together, that we have uh, even better races as we have nowadays. Yeah? A realistic result these days is uh, seventh, eighth position. Uh, we cannot dream of a fifth position because... There is Red Bull, Mercedes, Ferrari, McLaren, and Alpine. These are more or less work teams. And uh, then you have to find a way to beat the others. Also the other teams uh, like Haas, like uh, Williams, uh, or Alpha, uh, or Aston Martin. You know, they do a, a real good job. Uh, you must get it together. And uh, with the philosophy to educate young drivers, it's not so easy to achieve such a goal, yeah? because the driver was always a performance differentiator, but at this stage is even more a performance differentiator, because from the technical side, the cars are coming closer and closer together. Let's talk about drivers then. When it came to driver selection at Toro Rosso and Alpha Tauri, can you talk us through the process? Because it wasn't as straightforward as other teams, was it? Because there was obviously the drivers you wanted, but also there was what Red Bull wanted as well. And were you always aligned? 
No, we were not always aligned, you know. First, um, the young drivers are being selected by Dr. Marco. They do Formula 4, Formula 3, Formula 2. I know all the names. I look to the races. And then you get already a picture. And, uh, of course, there were sometimes discussions. Helmut wanted a driver. I wanted a driver. Who won that battle? Uh, most often he, sometimes also me, but we always had then a meeting with Mateschitz. But Dietrich then, he was more often on the side of Helmut. And uh, then he said, yeah, take this driver, he will do it. And I said to them, he will not do it, but I take him, okay? But it's for nothing. Yeah? And unfortunately, sometimes this was the case, but this is how it is. Yeah? And then Helmut was then upset with me, of course. Yeah, and then there was mm, one, two months, we didn't talk so much together, yeah, but then our relationship is like a sinus curve, yeah, up and down, it's, it's okay. Now, 17 drivers have passed through Toro Rosso and Alpha Tauri during your time in charge. Who's impressed you the most? Yeah, at the beginning, of course, uh, Sebastian. He really, really took everything serious and he was very disciplined. He took care for every small detail, uh, not only from the driving side, yeah, but also from the nutrition side, from the training side. He called me many times and we discussed different topics. He lived really 360 days Formula One, and this is what I expect. Then, of course, Max. Max, because of his unbelievable speed, when we brought him to Formula One, uh, I remember back some of your colleagues came to me and said, uh, you are totally crazy. How can you take someone who even doesn't have a driver license? Yeah? Then I said, uh, sorry, I don't want to discuss this with you now. Come in five years, uh, then we can discuss it. Yeah? Because I got tired to defend our decision. This unbelievable natural speed, you could see ah, sometimes in Formula 3. I remember back this wet race at the Norris Ring. I thought Max is driving on a dry line, yeah, because he was, I don't remember now the times, I think it's 52, 53 seconds per lap, and he was two seconds faster than the rest. This remembered me also when Michael Schumacher won a Formula Ford race at the Salzburg Ring, similar conditions, and he was also every lap two, three seconds faster than the rest. Yeah? And then, this is important for me, I want to see what is a driver doing in our car? We had then the test in Italy. Adria, wasn't it? In Adria, yeah. And he got immediately clear with the car. He adopted immediately the speed, the brakes, everything. And this was the big advantage, or is the big advantage for Max. He does not have a problem with the speed. Other drivers need 10 laps, 20 laps, 100 laps, depends whether it's a learner or not, yeah, until they adapt the speed, also the brakes and everything. Max was sitting in there, and he had it under control. And that's very important. And then uh, we said, okay, he should do the free practice in Suzuka, I think, was his first free practice. And then once more, you call it, can be a totally case, one of the most difficult racetracks. He just went out and did his job without any problem. Then the second one was, I think, in Sao Paulo. I don't remember now exactly the number of the corner, five or six, uh, where he had the oversteering, he lost it a little bit. But he caught the car without any problem. Yeah? He was not surprised by the speed, he had it under control. And that's decisive. This was really impressive with so 
few number of laps how he immediately got the speed. But Franz, he was 17 yeah. when he made his debut in Formula One in, in Australia. Did you have any reservations about what you were doing? No, it was clear. But he was 17. It doesn't matter. This is just a figure on the birth calendar or whatever. He was racing already 10 years or 11 years. And that's decisive. Because nowadays, the young drivers start karting with six, seven years. And then, and that's the next important factor at Max, he had Jos, his father, on his side. And, you know, Jos was a successful uh, Formula One driver, yeah? And he taught him everything. Of course, there were also some highlights and some uh, maybe difficult uh, periods yeah, when uh, Max didn't win, yeah? But he got to, through a fantastic school. This you could see. If you told him something, he understood immediately what you meant. And he immediately went out with the car and tried it. Whether it worked or not, yeah, he tried it and then he decided, yes, it's good or no, it's not good. And that's very important. Other drivers, they need three, four laps. He immediately. And uh, this was really, really impressive. You lost Max to Red Bull Racing midway through 2016. At 18 years and 227 days old, Max Verstappen wins the Spanish Grand Prix and is the youngest driver ever to win a Formula One World Championship Grand Prix. Yes! Yes! Unbelievable, Max. Unbelievable. Max Verstappen, you are a race winner. Fantastic. What a debut. What a debut. Fantastic. Great, great job. Thank you very much, Christian. He wins his first race for that team. Were even you surprised? Yeah, he won uh, because, you know, there was the hamilton Rosberg crash, if I remember right. Yeah, and we had the same engine than uh, Raikkonen. Yeah, he was fighting against Raikkonen. He knew exactly how to use the NGOK and how to use the battery, the energy. This was the typical sign for a driver who has everything under control, who is not overloaded by driving. He can think to other things. He can read the race. He knows what the opponents are doing. Yeah? And he knew where uh, Raikkonen can become dangerous for him. And he drove exactly the way to defend and to win this race. Of course, I was surprised. It's a fantastic success, yeah, but uh, we, we all were happy with him. Now, I'm not going to ask you about all 17 drivers that have been through the door at Toro Rosso Alpha Tauri. So let's stick to the ones who have gone on to win races. We've discussed Vettel. We've discussed Verstappen. What about Carlos Sainz? So, Carlos Sainz is also a skilled driver. From the natural speed, he is not on the level of Max, but Carlos is a very hard worker. Carlos is a very clever driver. With his effort, he reached real a very high level. And uh, he belongs for me currently also to the best drivers in Formula One. You could see this in those days. You know? He is not a driver who sits in and is immediately fast. He needs some laps. But he analyzes everything. He works on his deficiencies. And therefore, he has uh, reached this, this high level nowadays. Yeah? Carlos and Max were rookies together in 2015. They were both hungry for success. Was there any tension in the garage? 
Yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, but this is good. I like the tension. I don't like if the drivers are too close to each other, too friendly to each other, because this is not a good sign. And um, there was friction. And then the fathers, you know, one father there, one father there, was interesting to observe for me. I liked it, yeah. But, you know, Max was really a kind of a rookie because he did just Formula 3. Carlos did Formula BMW, if I remember right, and Formula Renault, two liters, then the, the Formula Renault World uh, Championship yeah, with the 3.5 liter. Uh, he was, from this point of view, he was much, much better prepared. But they fought against each other, and there you could see the absolutely um, natural speed from Max. Was Sainz ever in the running to replace Kvyat at Red Bull Racing, or was it always going to be Max who took the step up mid-2016? No, this after, after the season with us, this was Max. Yeah. Max was simply faster, and uh, the decision... Uh, from uh, Red Bull Racing was absolutely right. Now, what about Daniel Ricciardo? You've had two stabs at him, both as a, as a young driver and, of course, again, 10 years later in 2023. What are his greatest qualities? Daniel is uh, also a skilled driver. Um, his great qualities are going more on the technical side. Uh, I remember back he was uh, driving those days against Shore Kwan. And... Um, why Daniel made the steps forward? Because uh, he was also working very hard on the technical side, how to set up the car. I remember back, George Ascanelli was working those days with us. Uh, he uh, really uh, asked him many, many questions. And Daniel has a very good feeling for the car. He gives you a real good uh, feedback what the car is doing. He still has. Therefore, he won uh, also eight races uh, because... You know, in those days, sometimes he was uh, quite close with Max also. Yeah. How's Daniel changed in the decade out from the team, if you like? Yeah, from the person, of course, he's much more matured now. He is um, still very fast. I think he needs the trust to the team and to the car. We will see now, because you know, up to now he did only a few races with us, unfortunately, he was injured in uh, Zandvoort with this uh, heavy accident. And uh, Austin, you can forget, uh, also said to him, will not so be easy here. He needs two, three races to get once more into the speed. Yeah, because uh, the level, as I mentioned before, in Formula 1 from the driving side is quite high. You don't come in and uh, just uh, beat all the others. It's, it's no way. You have to build it up step by step. And uh, I hope that our car is competitive enough. If we provide him with a good car, uh, he will be there. And uh, I would be happy if he would come into Q3. You've said that Daniel is fast. You've said he's very technical. But were you surprised that when he went to Red Bull Racing in 2014, he, I think we can say, blew Vettel away? Yeah, he blew Vettel away uh, because this was the first year, if I remember right, with the new power unit, from the driving style, and also from the brake by wire system. This was not so developed in those days. I think Sebastian suffered a little bit more with the rear until he got this under control. It took a little bit yeah, because uh, there were also many power unit failures. Uh, they couldn't do so many tests 
as he should have done to build up the trust to the car. And uh, Daniel, in, in those days, he was younger, and, and uh, he got it faster together, and therefore he showed a real good performance. Let's talk now about Pierre Gasly. Of the race winners that have driven for you, how does he stack up? Pierre also developed himself really good, I must say. And um, unfortunately, they took him away after the first year from us. Too soon? Too soon. I said immediately, will not work. Why uh, did you think it wouldn't work, him he was going not, to Red He was not matured enough to go there. We are a team to educate young drivers. You can't just say, yeah, he drove now uh, a year with uh, Toro Rosso. He must come now to us to be successful against Max and uh, to score points, to finish second or whatever. This is, you know, on a piece of paper, on the computer, maybe it sounds everything good and looks good. It does not work in the practice. Why does it not work? If a young driver comes to us, he has to run through different periods. The first one is... He's a passenger in the car. Drivers hate to hear this because they think they have it under control. They have nothing under control. Now you will say or ask, yeah, but how can they drive then? They can drive because they did 16 years of uh, racing beforehand. Karting, Formula 4, Formula 3, Formula 2. That means from the driving side, everything is okay. The mechanical side. This is period two. They get the understanding about the mechanical side. Yeah? How does the car feel? Be stiffer or with a softer uh, anti-roll bar or spring or whatever. The third period is to understand the aerodynamic side. How does the car feel with less right high, higher right high, more front wing, uh, less front wing, more rear wing, and so on and so on. The fourth period are the tires. And this is not an easy one. You have three different compounds. The heart the middle and the soft. And uh, a partner in qualifying with the soft where you just push like hell with the other tires, you have to do in the race a tire management, you call it. That means, for example, in Austin with the medium tires, you had to push in the, in the fast corners to hit up the front tires because otherwise you had problems also with the rear. But you have to learn this. You have to experience this. Then in qualifying, for example, different situations with more sunshine, less sunshine, side wind, head wind, tail wind. You, you have to experience this. And the last period is you control the environment. You can see what uh, spectators do at the grandstands or in, in, in Monaco, for example, when you go up to the casino, there's a big screen. You see where are the other drivers. You can read the race. You know, aha, uh -huh, this driver is out with these tires. That means he will struggle in I don't know how many laps. Yeah? And then to build up a strategy and uh, to do this. Or, for example, uh, the fantastic race win from Sainz in Singapore, when he, uh, he didn't push away, no. He just uh, controlled the speed that Norris, I think, was behind him, uh, could stay in his CRS because the others then could not overtake him. This is real, let me say, a high understanding. And a small qualified 
and skilled and talented the driver is as faster he goes through all these periods. What is the typical learning period? How long does it normally take? You know, I, I always say a driver until he is educated to go to Red Bull Racing, he needs three years. Yeah, because the first year is just flying away. The second year, he gets more understanding on this technical side, as I explained it just before. Yeah? And the third year, he gets a better overview of what's going on also regarding the races and so on. Uh, because at Red Bull Racing, you have to fight for victories. And with our car or with our team and with your unexperience, you fight for midfield positions. That's a completely different story also from the pressure and from everything. Do you think the likes of Albon, Kvyat, if they'd had longer at Toro Rosso to learn their trade, they could have gone on and had very successful careers at Red Bull Racing? You know, first of all, they made the decisions because a driver left over there, for example, Vettel. This was not expected when I think Kiat came there. Yeah, There were also some situations where they had to look or they had to bring in another driver. And of course, because of the philosophy, first of all, they took a driver from us. Yeah, It was not deliberately that they say, oh, we take this driver, although we know he is unexperienced. They were in, the, in a situation where they had to do it. Or other drivers, which they wanted, uh, were not free. They had a contract. Yeah, This is the first point. But of course, yeah, if you see now Albon, he is doing very well. And, or or uh, Gasly, when he came back to us, yeah was winning the race with us and now he is uh, with Alpine in the works team yeah but you know afterwards it's always easier to criticize something yeah but uh, when they made the decision in those days this was also not planned from their side it was because a driver left or something else happened let's talk next about some drivers who have been through the system have been through the team but didn't fulfill their potential are there some names that you can share with us now i mean let me start you with Jaime Algaswari. Was he a guy who had the ability, just wasn't given enough time? Mm, he, he had enough time. He was three years with us. But I think uh, Jaime from the natural speed was not on the level to become a successful Formula One driver. Yeah? Others, Bohemi, for example, he is successful in, um, in the World Endurance Championship and he won, I don't know how many times now, the 24 hours of Le Mans. He won also the Formula E uh, World Championship. He also quite successful there, as well as Jean-Éric Van. So do you take satisfaction from young drivers who have been through the team, who haven't made it in Formula One, but have succeeded in other forms of motorsport? Do you take satisfaction from that as well? Yes, I take satisfaction. I am uh, happy with them that they won, because I have uh, good connections or relationships with the drivers. And uh, when they win the 24 hours of Le Mans, then I'm happy with them as well, yes. What about the here and now, Yuki Tsunoda? You know him well. What can he go on to achieve in this sport? Yuki is, from the natural speed, really a top driver, I must say. But he has to become even more disciplined and must work a little bit harder. He takes it a little bit too easy. In what areas? Um, in all the areas. And the technical side, uh, nutrition a little bit, physical training a little bit. Although he is getting better and better everywhere, but to become a top driver, uh, he must put in more effort in everything. What about Liam Lawson? You had him for five races. Does he deserve a race seat in Formula One? 
Liam Lawson deserves a race in Formula One. He uh, was put into the car in Sandford under very difficult circumstances, wet conditions, dry conditions. He uh, was out the first time uh, with um, a Formula One car and with full wet tires. Then uh, he had to change to the intermediates and he managed everything without doing any mistake. A very, very good job. And uh, I must also say that Liam got much more matured now. I think this year in Japan has helped him a lot. He did a fantastic race in Singapore because Singapore is not an easy track, which means he takes the physical training also serious and uh, therefore he scored uh, two points. He finished ninth and um, he deserves to be in Formula One. 100%. So of the 17 drivers that have driven for you, you can have only two in your team. Which ones would you pick? Yeah, Vettel and Max. Why? Uh, because um, of their dedication to the sport and um, of their speed. They know how to win races and um, they also bring all the factors with them what you need to win races. This is, first of all, the talent. You must be high-skilled for driving such a car. And for a second, the passion. Both of them are very passionate. Look to Max. He is driving uh, this e-car series or all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Isn't this fantastic? Yeah, he is uh, three times Formula One world champ, and uh, at home he is uh, racing against the others on the computer. Yeah. Uh, the same for, for Vettel, not e-drive, but uh, karting and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And then their discipline. They know exactly when, what they have to do. And that's so important. The discipline is a very, very important factor. And then to study the rivals, to find out where are their deficiencies and to work on this, to beat them. And uh, these are the factors. Both of these drivers have to 100%. Okay, one word answer to each of these next two questions. Who would win the qualifying head-to-head -head between Vettel and Verstappen? Verstappen. Who would win more races? Could be Sebastian. What a team. <laughs> exactly, therefore I chose it. <laughs> so, friends, as a team principal of, let's call it Team Fienza, how do you want people to remember you and your period with the team? Oh, I have never thought about this, to be honest. Yeah. Um, if they think that I did a good job, that uh, they have me positive in mind. Yeah, I met so many people. Some of them will think, uh, fortunately, this uh, idiot is away. Others will think, oh, he was okay. Uh, maybe some of them will think oh, he was good. I, I don't know. And to be honest, I even don't care. What does retirement hold for you? Yeah, I will see. I don't know it is by myself. Yeah, I must wait now. Yeah, uh, how it is. Yeah, because there are different offers. Uh, people want to work together with me. We will see what I do. Uh, I have no idea currently. I am not worried that uh, I don't know what to do because I have really a big to-do list: skiing, uh, being in the mountains, uh, climbing, and all this kind of stuff. Yeah but also um, taking care for other businesses uh, which were built up in the, in the past where I never had time uh, to do it. Um, most of it did my wife and so on. Yeah. And I'm just smiling by myself and say, if I come in a totally old life crisis, 
Uh, I will do uh, karting, then I will do racing with a Porsche or something like this. Uh, I have it already in mind. Also, boring, for sure, not. We're going to see you in the Porsche Super Cup, aren't we? <laughs> what will you miss about this team? The people, of course, yeah, because um, there are so fantastic people in this team and I uh, work together with them uh, so many years and there's a trust on each side and I will miss them, of course. This is 100%. And what will you miss about Formula One? The atmosphere of a race weekend. Uh, I will watch all the Formula One races, of course. This is clear. But to be at the racetrack, uh, a little bit the pressure to have a good race, uh, to think about uh, the strategy, to think about what to tell to the drivers, uh, to study the results of FP1, FP2, FP3. I take all these lists with me and then maybe in the evening before I sleep, I go once more through this, who is faster, why, and uh, the speeds and all this kind of stuff. I will for sure miss this uh, because uh, I like this. Friends, it's been a wonderful career. You're going to be much missed by people in Formula One and the fans watching. This I don't know, but thank you very much for all the support. And um, thanks also to the fans, uh, because, you know, the fans, uh, this is the basis for Formula One, for any kind of sport. Without fans, we would not be here. And it's really, really nice to see that all the grandstands are full and uh, that the fans are so enthusiastic for Formula One. And what's even more important, so many young fans and female fans as well. And uh, that's really good. Thank you, friends. Franz's passion for F1 shines bright, doesn't it? He's dedicated one third of his life to running Toro Rosso Alpha Tauri. And while he's undoubtedly been a hard taskmaster, just ask the engineers from earlier this year, he's always led by example. No one in the team has worked harder than him. No one in the team has wanted success more than him. Franz can be proud of the team's record. It went racing the right way. It was passionate and it had the respect of the pit lane. And Franz knows drivers. He's raced himself and his analysis of the guys who have graced his cockpits is spot on. And who wouldn't want to see a Vettel Verstappen super team mouthwatering? Personally, I'll miss Franz. I've always liked him and I've always admired his honesty. He says what he thinks, irrespective of the consequences. And that's admirable in a highly politicized environment like F1. So let's raise a glass to Franz Tost and wish him a long and happy old life crisis in retirement. Thank you, Franz. Now over to you at home. Please share your thoughts and stories about Franz and the career he's had in Formula One. You can contact me through all the usual means. I'm at Tom Clarkson F1 on X and you can use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. Which brings me on to what you sent in about my conversation with Mario Andretti last week. Let's start with this from regular contributor DNF Despair. I love that you can still hear the joy for the sport in Mario's voice. Hearing how he struggled to celebrate winning the championship as his friend and teammate had died reminded me of Charles winning his first race the day after Antoine Hubert's death in 2019. Thank you for getting in touch, DNF. And that comparison with Charles is one that I hadn't thought of. It's very poignant. Next, let's hear from KJS. TC, your podcast with the great Mario Andretti has to be like him. One of the greatest. Thank you, KJS. I could have listened to him reminiscing about his wonderful career for hours. 
Mario was and still is a godlike figure to me, and I followed his post F1 career just as closely. Thank you, KJS. I couldn't agree more. Mario still loves this wonderful sport as much now as he always did. And what about this from Roger? Thank you for the best episode so far. Great stories revealing Mario's personality and mindset. In 1978, I was a kid watching that Monza race thanks to ABC's Wide World of Sports. And I remember the shock and disbelief when I learned that Ronnie Peterson had passed. Good to hear from you, Roger. And you're not the first person to refer to ABC's Wide World of Sports as their touchpoint for F1 back in the day. Great stuff. And finally, let's hear this from Tommy Hughes. Wow, legendary. I could listen to Mario talk all day long. Stories and details from the past, and not just in F1, but also Indy and Le Mans. A nice surprise for a Wednesday morning listen. Thanks, Tommy. And Mario never ceases to surprise, even after all these years. We'll leave it there for messages this week. Thanks to everyone who got in touch, and please accept my apologies if I haven't read your message out. It's only through a lack of time. And please remember to send in your thoughts and stories about Franz Tost in time for next week's show. Well, that's pretty much it for this week. Thank you as ever for listening. And if you'd like some more F1, F1 Nation's review of the Las Vegas Grand Prix is out now. Damon Hill, Natalie Pinkham and I reflect on that wonderful race over the weekend. I will, of course, be back next week with another great guest from the world of Formula One. Until next time, keep it flat out. F1 Beyond the Grid is produced by Formula One and Audio Boom Studios. <laughs>